Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you conversations with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include technology, culture, leadership, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global Studio in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we'll be looking at the importance of narrative, why you need to know how to sow your narrative in the world of social media and 24-7 news cycles, why it's imperative to understand the difference between narrative and story, and what some of the component parts of a narrative design session series should be. Here with us today to talk about all that and more is Toby Trevarthan, co-author of Narrative Generation and Chief Narrative Officer at Spark PR. Along with Ann Bedello and Tim Donovan, Toby wrote the recently published Narrative Generation, Why Narrative Will Become Your Most Valuable Asset in the Next Five Years. Toby is a visionary executive with a track record of innovating new concepts into living outcomes. His ideology is shaped by a probable, plausible, and possible lens, and his core career skill delivers monetization in a cross-channel and cross-device world. Welcome to the podcast, Toby. Good morning. Glad to be here. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you on. Congratulations on the publication of the book. So let's start off today talking about the creative process behind the book, because it sounds a little bit unlike the way most books are written. Can you share with listeners how it came to be? Yes, uh, indeed. It was a kind of a rare approach. Uh, my colleagues uh, in the book, Tim Donovan and Ann Badello, we came together Oh gosh, almost two years ago now. I think it was July 2015. Actually, that was a year and a half ago. And Anne comes from a, a thought leadership, uh, more of a strategic think tank background. And she's done a lot of uh, facilitation around the world for Davos, uh, World Economic Forum, and uh, various you know large-scale thought tank, think tank uh, entities like that. And one of the concepts that she had had was the idea of creating a book in two days. And could it be done? So we came up with this concept called the Book Swarm, which effectively brought together 50 people from different walks of life. And the subject matter for the day was what is narrative in the 21st century? And that day was about an eight-hour all-in day. We had uh, those 50 participants break down into groups of eight, and lo and behold, those became the chapters uh, for the book. So each of those teams were then fed series of questions. They debated among themselves, you know, presented out in a group format uh, so everyone could hear what each other was working on. Uh, and then over the course of the day, we rotated people from chapter one to chapter two to chapter three, so you had some threading uh, happen between the individuals. Uh, and at the end of that day, it was a very uh, complete and exhausting day, as you can imagine, eight sure. hours of thinking. Uh-huh. <laughs> it produced an outline that the next day uh, got synthesized into um, uh, you know, a pretty constructive approach for what ultimately became uh, the foundation for the book. 
And I can tell you that it's impossible to create a book in two days. (laughs) (laughs) At a year and you have one. (laughs) Very nice. So let me ask, we live in the world of social media and the 24-hour news cycle at no time than uh, during this election season. Has that been more apparent? Why did those two things make narrative an even more important thing for organizations to consider? Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, Tim and I both live in the PR world. He is more of a PR practitioner. I am not. I'm more of a you know, digital media professional that has been around for a while. And I think one of the things that we've noticed, if you look at typical news cycles, they uh, have a very slow sine wave where they kind of ebb and flow over time. And as the social frenzy has kicked in, those sine waves have gotten tighter and tighter. Hence, it's much more difficult today to get a signal uh, through the noise than ever before. And I think one of the key pieces of how this leads to a narrative and why it's so important today is it's 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 very important for a company to understand uh, it needs a through line to get through that noise. And without a through line that hangs off something, uh, you really are just whipsawed around based on you know the, the craziness of the uh, the always on news cycle that we're witnessing. Yeah, and and the concept of a through line is kind of a a narrative thread that ties your story or message together? Correct. Yeah, we um, typically uh, refer to narratives as your your North Star as a company, and uh, without a clear vision of what that is, uh, it's, it's pretty impossible to maintain a through line given the fact that you really don't control things anymore. It's much more of a consumer controlled environment. And I would suggest that we are in a pull stage now versus what used to be a push stage as it relates to marketing. Sure. So one analogy that you make in the book is the concept of narrative as a living mosaic. What do you mean when you talk about that concept? Yeah, one of the things that came out of that uh, books form session was the reality that narrative is still kind of this uh, esoteric subject. You know, what what does it really mean? We see the word bantered about quite a bit, uh, mostly in literature. You think of it more in movies in terms of uh, storytelling. But as things start to play out, both in a societal function as well as, you know, a commercial function with companies, we needed to kind of give it a metaphor, if you will, for a visual metaphor that would help kind of ground this concept. And we came up with two. One was mosaic and the other was ecosystem or ecology. Because uh, one of the things about narratives is it's never ending. It's an ongoing uh, thing. And the idea of a mosaic, a living mosaic, uh, if you think back to you know the early stages of uh, communication in man, Uh, We didn't have ink and paper and papaya at that point. So shards of pottery, shards of, uh, you know, materials that were in existence got shaped into a mosaic. And so one of the things that really kind of crystallized for us was that all these shards or tesseras, we refer to them in the book, which is an Italian term, you know, each of those are seeds of a story and alone, they may not represent the big picture, but when you combine them together they develop an elaborate picture, which is effectively what a mosaic is. So we thought that was a very uh, strong metaphor uh, to help give some meaning to the word narrative and, and how we view it. 
Yeah, and I think you probably answered some of this question with the last one, but you draw a very distinct line in the book between story and narrative. So what is that difference between the two that you define in the book? Yeah, and we owe some of the gratitude of that perspective from uh, to John Hagel, who uh, we view as kind of the godfather of narrative. Uh, he's been talking about this now for several years. And he postulates that, you know, stories have beginnings, middles, and ends. And they're usually very self-contained and controlled, if you will, on some level. And we are merely uh, observers or passive listeners to a story where a narrative generally has a beginning but no end. And it's shaped interactively by participants, be it conflicting views or agreeing views or consenting views or even silence, if you will. And we see that play out more and more now, especially in this political climate. You've got all these narrative spins happening and you see, you know, vehement uh, division, if you will, in terms of who's supporting, who's not. And that is a true replication. Uh, representation, I say is a better word, uh, of how this narrative is still ongoing. It's still being shaped and it doesn't have a beginning, middle, or end like a story does. So that's really how we uh, see that difference. So, so let me ask about filter bubbles. There's something that we all experience to some degree, often without really realizing the impact that they may have on our way of thinking. What are filter bubbles, and do you have any recommendations on how listeners might be able to avoid them? Yeah, I think uh, as we live in the land of uh, you know algorithms that control uh, what we view and what we read and what we respond to, uh, that's primarily uh, what we are referring to as a filter bubble. So if you take the notion of searching um, – if you search on the word narrative, I search on the word narrative, my wife search on the word narrative, all three of us may get completely different results as a, as a result of our search. And that is predicated based on our behavioral patterns. And each of us will have different patterns. So one of the notion is today, uh, if someone is expressing you know, a universal thought or a global thought, uh, it may be broken into a million different views depending on what my pattern is. You know, if I'm a staunch Republican, uh, I may get one view of that. If I'm a staunch Democrat, I may get a separate view of that. And so that's what we refer to as a filter bubble. And then ultimately, if you follow like-minded people, uh, you ultimately are, you know, perpetuating your own thinking as opposed to taking on the other side or, you know, gaining some sense of empathy for what the other guy is saying. And, you know, today, given Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, uh, somewhat control the distribution of, of how we share things, it's becoming a very uh, interesting place in terms of, you know, what view you get, take and understand as a result. Yeah. And you write in the book about what the open source software operating system known as Linux has to do with narrative initiators and respondents. Can you share the general idea behind those two key roles in the narrative process and how they relate back to Linux? Sure. One of the things that you come to realize is, you know, 
a narrative already exists uh, for you, for me, for a company, uh, for a society, for an organization. And one of the things that you need to think about is, are you going to be an initiator of a new narrative or are you going to be a respondent to the existing narrative? And when you think about open source uh, software, one of the things that struck us about Linux uh, and the whole open source going back to Mozilla and, and how that all you know came to be is it started with a kernel. Someone initiated an idea to create a better software versus what existed. And then in an open source context, everyone was able to add to that and build the software into a more robust, complex uh, organism, if you will. And there are multiple ways that that happened. So you had the initiator uh, who created the kernel, and then you had the respondents who added to the kernel, some of which, if you're a coder, you know you were physically adding. If you're a user, you may have been passively uh, involved, but you were actually using the software. So on some level, uh, you were a respondent uh, using the software, but you may not have been contributing to it. That's really what we uh, meant by that. Okay. phrase got it and one one concept that you write about is relatability which is a must for any narrative to pass muster and resonate with its audience you write about three key questions that a narrative must answer in order to ring true with any audience can you share what those questions are yeah i think um if there's it's funny there's there's three main questions and there's probably a, a series of sub questions in there but i think everything comes back to three main topics, one being authentic, uh, the other relatable, as you just mentioned, and the third is a, a, a need to call to action. And then I would actually even throw a fourth in there uh, about inspirational. So one of the things that really rings true about a narrative is that if it's not authentic, uh, you are called out pretty fast. And if you slip off that authenticity, you know, banana peel, havoc, comes into play. And then relatable, I think the, the core thing that underlies the narrative is, is a belief system. And as I mentioned earlier, we're in kind of this poll society right now where I can tell you how great my brand is over and over and over. But if I'm not resonating with your belief system, uh, you know, I'm not touching you. Hence, I'm more in, inclined as a consumer now where if I believe in what you stand for, I will give you my vote, I will you know, give you my purchase. Uh, and it's more upon connecting at that level, which to me is where relatability comes in. And then thirdly, uh, you need that call of action or call to action, uh, because a narrative is meant as the beginning of uh, a movement to tap into these belief systems and once that starts to happen, you know, you do need a call to action in terms of why am I responding to this narrative, be it a purchase, uh, supporting it, uh, joining it, uh, or avoiding it, you know, if you want to look at the opposite lens. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, uh, the subtext of that is the aspirational elements of this, you know, am I moved by what this particular narrative stands for? Uh, and can I get behind it, which again, kind of taps back into belief systems and relatability. And throughout the book, you share examples of companies or organizations that are successfully disseminating their narrative and those who aren't. 
Can you share an example or two of those that fall into either category? Yeah, there's there's a couple, you know, company related uh, things we can talk about, and there's also some immediate societal things that are happening uh, that have had you know a dramatic cascading effect. Uh, from a company perspective, I think one of the companies that do it um, that does it really well is Patagonia. When you think about Patagonia, just the mental image that pops in your head when I say that brand, you know, they live their ethos. You know, the founder of the company uh, was all about conservation, uh, giving back to the earth. They backed that with a 1% environmental kickback. Uh, they tell you not to buy their clothes. They tell you to send their uh, older garments and they'll repair them for you. I mean, they go to great lengths to live and embody the narrative uh, that is known as Patagonia. Another company that, you know, I actually respect very well, uh, Starbucks, uh, you know, they tried to initiate a conversation about race uh, a while back. I think it was in the last year or two. And that thing failed miserably. And it's interesting now, ironically, you spin forward whatever, 18 months, uh, and, you know, we are at the precipice of a lot of race discussions. And I wonder now if Starbucks had done it today, if it would have had a different impact than when they did it, you know, when at the time they did it. Uh, I, I would say that was a very valiant effort um, on behalf of the company, uh, but they kind of misread uh, the market in terms of relatability coming from someone like a Starbucks. So those to me were kind of, you know, two clear uh, observations from a company perspective. And then I think right now, one of the things I've been following and actually been writing about is this whole Kaepernick stance uh, that he took with the national anthem. And it's funny, as, as the book was coming out and, you know, we've been analyzing narratives and which ones work and why do they work, that to me was like this incredible stage in front of me that was going live and to see the bipolar uh, or the polarization, if you will, on those that were disgusted by the fact that he took a stand but used the national anthem as his platform versus those who, you know, got what he was saying. Uh, and then when you kind of let time come into play, people who were vehemently opposed started to step back a little bit. And, you know, a big shift uh, happened where some people then really kind of understood what he was trying to accomplish and moved over to a support role. And then you started to see first followers, second followers start to come into play. And one of the interesting things is, you know, that trickled down into uh, college as well as high school. And in fact, there's a, um, a youth football team, I think it was you know, kids 11 to 13, agreed as a team uh, with the coaches to support the Kaepernick stance, and they actually got approval from the league and the executive directors uh, over this uh, football group. They proceeded to, you know, do the Kaepernick thing, and it just was met with, you know, violent reaction, threats, uh, things that we haven't seen since the civil rights era. And ultimately, uh, it unraveled. You know, coaches got let go, kids quit, uh, and. Um, you know, kind of uh, protest, and the whole team disintegrated, and uh, ultimately they don't have a season now. So it's been interesting to see, you know, how that 
concept perpetuated itself, you know, down to that level. And then, you know, what happened at the local level as a result of uh, supporting it. And that story is still ongoing, as you know. Yeah. And a great example of the difference between narrative and story as as more and more people added their own actions and <clears throat> I guess subsequent reactions to what was happening with the Kaepernick scandal. Excuse me. <clears throat> Um, so, so let me ask the, toward the end of the book, you, you have a series of constructive exercises that are meant to help readers hone in on the narratives that are important to them and their companies or their movements. Can you walk us through some of the steps in the narrative design session series? Sure. Um, yeah, for the sake of time, I'll, I'll go the abbreviated route because, uh, this can get a little involved, but, uh, Net net, I think you know people have to go through a series of you know processes uh, to really kind of understand where you are with your current narrative, and that's one of the things that you know we've done in my current practice at Spark with a concept that we've created called Agile Narrative, which is somewhat of a derivative of the book, but yet a little bit separate. But the process we go through is really to try to help a company, in this case, understand what is the narrative they're involved in. Uh, where do they where do they fit in their narrative? Do they even know what their narrative is? Because your customers, your competitors certainly do. And if you don't understand uh, where you fit, you know it's it's hard to figure out if you're a responder or initiator. Because uh, a lot of companies will just glom onto a news uh, article or something a competitor says, and they'll try to spin it back to their brand, and that falls false. So one of the things that I think is critical is that, be it a company, be it yourself, be it an organization, you really have to understand where your starting point is. And then from there, we bring in design thinking uh, and group collaboration such that uh, we take people through a pretty intense process. You generally have, you know, groups of people like we did for the book swarm was up to 50. Uh, but we've worked with companies as uh, small as four people. Generally, a good sweet spot is somewhere like 12 to 20 people. So you can break people into teams. And then, you know, you start to look at what kind of outcome do we want from this session? Uh, so, again, kind of starting with where are you? Um, where do we fit? in kind of the you know, narrative ecology out there in terms of how people perceive us. And then ultimately, where do we want to end up? And then the steps or the processes that we put in place is to get you from point A to you know, point Z. Uh, and we take you through the process of getting you there. And so in the book, we've effectively created 10 modules. Um, you may not use all of these. You may use some of these. But the modules are kind of designed to give you a formula and some frameworks um, to help guide you along that process where you're you know, teasing out your values, what's your proof points, what's your heritage, what's the ethos of the company. And you really want to dig deep into the vulnerabilities of the organization. You know, are we saying, are we doing what we say we do? Um, how do we treat customers? Um, you know, what's the belief system and the values and the principles of the company? And are we projecting that outward? So those kinds of things start to get pulled out in this process um, by going through these modules. And we've tried to give a sense of qualitative and a sense of quantitative so that 
you can do some self-assessment, you know, scoring things one to 10, you end up with a scorecard. Uh, if you're looking at your competitors, you do the same process. So let's say you have five competitors, you could do a self-assessment, assess the four others, and then figure out, uh, you know, from a quantitative perspective, where you think you fit versus um, that situation. And then ultimately, you know, there's the generation of the narrative. So how do you create one? Uh, what should it look like? Is it, you know, living the embodiment of what we want the outcome to look and feel like? And then ultimately, how you launch that, how you layer on top of that, how you manifest it. Um, and then ultimately, you need to kind of monitor and track this thing to understand if it's tracking or not. Because as we said, you know, a narrative is kind of this living through line, if you will. So you're going to have up and downs, you're going to have, you know, competitors pushing negative things against what you're saying, you're going to have market corrections, market conditions that you couldn't have anticipated that are going to impact you. You know, good case in point, um, in the book, we talk a lot about Chipotle and how they had a really powerful narrative. People bought into their fresh food. Uh, you know, they had a very solid machine happening there. And then boom, all of a sudden, you know, they had their E. coli issues. They had airborne disease issues. It was almost an embodiment of the fact that they were using fresh, fresh, you know, food, cilantros and whatnot, where things started to go wrong. And then, you know, how do you course correct? And we literally had to go back and rewrite the book because um, as we were writing uh, about Chipotle, that hadn't happened yet. And then ultimately when it did happen, you know, the book wasn't able to capture the outcomes because they're kind of still unfolding. But that was a case in point where a company had really established themselves with a very strong narrative and all of a sudden now they had controversy and what are they going to do about it, right? So we, we try to give you some frameworks and some guides in the book to address things like that uh, or anticipate them at minimum. Sure. And you mentioned that answer, Spark PR, where you serve as chief narrative officer. If we've learned one thing today, it's that narrative involves more than just one story or frame of reference. But since you are Spark PR's chief narrative officer, I have to ask, what is Spark <laughs> PR's narrative? Uh-oh, the shoe cobbler question. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a very interesting question because – as we've unfolded this process over the last two years, uh, it has really forced us to do a lot of self-analysis on who are we and what are we today because the company is 17 years old. The roots of the company uh, stem back to Netscape era. Uh, we've done a lot of startup um, activation. We've launched startups. Uh, we've seen startups and taken startups uh, to exit. So really – the company is kind of a new co DNA. Uh, and what we find is we attract a lot of startups who come to us because of that reputation. And now we're attracting a lot of uh, what I'll call old co or established companies who know they need a new co DNA injection. So taking that and trying to figure out like, well, what does that mean to us as a narrative? Uh, we've really kind of honed in on, you know, be relevant. What's that mean today? So we have been really assessing how do we stay relevant? How do we become more relevant? How do we stay ahead of the relevant curve? Because uh, you can be obsolete today in minutes uh, if you're not continuously learning and continuously evolving. So 
I would say uh, we've settled on an internal narrative of be relevant, and then it's up to the employees uh, to figure out what that means and uh, both their personal life as well as how do we you know maintain that throughout the organization. Okay, very nice. Well, Toby, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about the importance of narrative in the book, Narrative Generation. It's uh, on sale at Amazon.com. You can also visit the book's website to learn more about the making of the book at thenarrativeproject.net. Anywhere else online that people should be looking out for you, we'll mention the Twitter handles in the the official outro that we put on. But uh, anywhere else people should be looking out for you, Toby. Just, you know, narrativegeneration.com. Uh, so the name of the book is actually its own website as well. Uh, but uh, it is tied to the narrative project, which was uh, an explanation of the book swarm and how that came to be. But uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share some thinking today. And uh, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And congratulations again on uh, on the publication of the book. From two days to a year and a half, uh, it can happen for you, too. Thanks once again to Toby Trevarthen for joining us for this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to help craft the narrative around his book, Narrative Generation, you can follow and mention at Narrative Generation on Twitter and at Tobin W. That's Toby's personal handle. As Toby mentioned, the website for the book is narrativegeneration.com and you can learn more about the making of the book at narrativeproject.net. The Innovation Engine Podcast is produced by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. You can subscribe to the Innovation Engine on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio. And you can also ensure that you never miss an episode by going to threepillarglobal.com slash podcast and subscribing to receive fresh episodes in your inbox each time one comes out. You can also download our very own iOS app by going to the iTunes App Store and searching for the Innovation Engine Podcast. If you like what you hear on the Innovation Engine and you live in the world of product and software development, you may like our sister podcast, Take 3. Head on over to soundcloud.com slash take3pillar with the number 3 to hear my partner in crime, Julia Slattery, talking with three pillar team members to get quick takes on the trends, technologies, and tools that are changing the way software gets made and business gets done. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.